Thank you very much for asking me, Anna. Um, I could have said the uh, title was uh, <clears throat> in Aristotle and Alexander, because I've talked a bit uh, in an earlier book about Aristotle, or quite a lot in fact, uh, and so this is applying some of the same conclusions to Alexander, who turns out to be rather different. Now, one of the interesting things to me is that Aristotle um, was against only what I could call all along necessity. In uh, the most famous discussion in On Interpretation, Chapter 9, he talks all the time about how, <clears throat> since it was true um, 10,000 years ago, or for the whole of time, uh, that there would be a sea battle tomorrow, or, or wouldn't be. Uh, therefore, it was necessary 10,000 years ago, or for the whole of time. This 10,000 years ago, or the whole of time, is a sign that he's interested in what I call all-along necessity. And I said in, in my uh, early book, that Necessity, Cause and Blame, that he treated determinism a second time in Metaphysics, Book 6, Chapter 3, which is on page 1 of the handout. Um, and there again, I believe, he was speaking about all along necessity. His chief worry was that if everything had been inevitable, indefinitely far back, and then, at any rate, that would affect our <coughs> general opinions uh, uh, about conduct. He only mentions those general opinions about conduct uh, in the De Interpretatione, the On Interpretation, Chapter 9. He doesn't mention them here in Metaphysics, Book 6, Chapter 3. And when he does mention them in On Interpretation, Chapter 9, he, to my mind, selects the wrong examples. He says that this would disturb all our preconceptions about deliberation, the value of effort, the point of deliberation, and action. I think that is a bit too sweeping, actually. Uh, strangely enough, he doesn't mention the praise and blame, or praiseworthiness and blameworthiness in particular. I'll come back to that in a few moments. There is no doubt that he is tremendously interested in praise and blame, or praiseworthiness and blameworthiness. He's interested both when he defines the voluntary, and that's in Nicomachean Ethics 3.1 and Nicomachean Ethics 5.8. In both cases, he says that what is voluntary <coughs> is uh, uh, praised or, or blamed. And he means praiseworthy or blameworthy. And indeed, in, in 3.1, he says this is <coughs> a major reason for studying the voluntary at all. But as well as the notion of voluntary, he has the notion of up to us. Uh, if something is up to us, <coughs> he also thinks we can be praised or blamed. <coughs> and he says that in one of the same chapters, Nicomic in Ethics 5.8, but also in another of his ethical works, Eudemian Ethics, Book 2, Chapter 9. Now, a complaint has been made about Aristotle's treatment of the second of those concepts, 
up to us because it's been complained and there's some truth in it uh, that sometimes he speaks merely about what human beings in general can do some of them and in some circumstances and of course uh, that doesn't really interest the determinist um, or the concern the question of whether determinism is compatible with moral responsibility uh, that's a question about individuals and their individual uh, responsibility praiseworthiness or blameworthiness but fortunately Aristotle does sometimes clearly apply the term up to us it's up, up to him what he did uh, to the individual person uh, one example is in Nicomachean Ethics Book 3 Chapter 5 where he talks about somebody who's become vicious he's become so vicious that uh, it's now impossible for him to stop behaving in this sort of way nonetheless he can be praised or blamed for his present behavior because his present behavior uh, was formed by his getting into the habit of behaving that sort of way earlier at a time when it was up to him uh, to behave badly or not to behave badly up to him is often expressed in terms of uh, um, up to one to act or not to act uh, that's why even though it's now necessary inevitable that he's behaving badly because the vice is ingrained he's praiseworthy or blameworthy because of the earlier up to usness of those habit forming actions so you see that's another sign that Aristotle doesn't mind uh, at some stage of one's action becoming necessary that doesn't rule out praise and blame being justified as it is with the vicious person it's all along necessity as I said that he attacks uh, one more example uh, of where up to us is implied uh, to the individual uh, or, or, or rather I should say it's not up to us that's applied to the individual but it's um, it's um, deliberation that's applied to the individual and that admittedly is not the same uh, he says we don't deliberate about how the Scythians should behave and elsewhere about how the Indians should behave because we deliberate about what might come about through us and then he adds all through our friends because that is more or less through us so he's obviously talking about the individual the individual deliberates about not how other people should behave in general but about how he should behave or she now why is it as I've mentioned that with Aristotle so interested in voluntariness in up to us and praiseworthiness and blameworthiness he never discusses whether all along necessity would be incompatible with praise and blame he does and I don't think I emphasize this in my book although it had already been pointed out for example in an article by Pamela Huby he, 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 he does in spite of his huge interest in up to us never make that point that all along necessity would be incompatible with it I think the reason is this it was in his day rather rare for people to cite all along necessity or fate 
as an excuse for their bad conduct. The only example I've found, and do tell me if you know some others, is Aeschylus's play The Coephory, where somebody does excuse themselves for bad conduct by saying it was fate. But that uh, was a one-off as far as I've so far found. And so it wasn't a, a major issue that he had to confront. Therefore, he chose other examples in Odd Interpretation, Chapter 9, and said, as I mentioned, all along necessity would be incompatible with the value of deliberation, the point of effort and action. Well, that was a bit too broad a canvas. Much more plausible if he'd said incompatible with up to us and voluntary. He, he didn't because of what was going on at the time, I say. Now, uh, 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 one of the two main things I said in the first two chapters of that book, Necessity, Cause and Blame, was this. That Aristotle does confront causal determinism head on, and he does so in the very first passage on page one of the handout, I said. Now, this passage had been called baffling by an extremely uh, able colleague of ours, Christopher Kerwin, who um, retired, he's still living in Oxford and comes to some of the meetings. Uh, he said it was baffling. Uh, the only person I think who's uh, strenuously tried to find objections to what I said, uh, Robert Heinemann, uh, took the view that Aristotle's whole view of, uh, sorry, of coincidences or accidents was irremediably confused, and therefore he didn't try to make sense of the passage, uh, even though he uh, uh, disagreed that I had managed to make sense of it, and I'll come back to that. So there are two the two most recent, very full discussions I, I, I've, I've, I've looked at closely, uh, thinking either it's baffling or it's irremediably confused. Well, I thought it was clear as day. I'm slightly exaggerating. <laughs> it's not clear as day, really. But my main point, if you just look at the little bits of Book 6, Chapter 3 of the Metaphysics I've underlined, is... Uh, you see in the third line of the translation, he is worried that otherwise all things will be of a necessity, and he doesn't want that. And um, he tells a story in the middle, which I haven't underlined, in the middle of the second paragraph. Will this be, or will it not? I'm in the third line of the paragraph, actually. It will, if that happens, otherwise not. And that will happen if something else does. And so it is clear that as time is constantly subtracted from a lim limited period, one will come to the present. If you look at something far off into the future, I mean, for all he says, it could be a thousand years hence. The world, England went, will be under the water in a thousand years' time. All right. <clears throat> he wants to go back uh, through the causal chain. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's a causal chain uh, to the present. Now, the present is irrevocable. It's too late to make the present otherwise than it is. There's, there's all the carbon up in the atmosphere. It's too late now. <clears throat> you can't stop that amount of carbon being there. And so, uh, if that's enough to cause uh, England beyond the water in a thousand years' time, uh, it's already inevitable. He's talking about the big, the big scale. This man then will die by uh, violence if he goes out will go out if he gets thirsty, and will get thirsty if something else. It's part of the causal chain, you see. The, 
The spicy food causes him to get thirsty. Thirst causes him to go out to the well. In this way, one will come to what now obtains, or to something past, which is irrevocable. For example, the man will go out if he gets thirsty, he will get thirsty if he's eating something spicy, and this either obtains or does not. In the present, you see, so it's irrevocable now. He's eating the spicy food. Likewise, if one jumps over to the past, it's the same story. For that, I mean, what is past already obtains in somebody. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't noticed he says in somebody. That is actually going to be interesting for me. I'll come to it. But I think it only is an example that he's got in mind, like he's eating spicy food. I don't think it's important, apart, except for keeping to that example, where the past cause was in somebody. But we can come back to that later. Uh, so all future things will be of necessity on this view he deplores. Like the, like the death of what is alive, uh, which he agrees is inevitable. For something has already come into being, for example, opposed qualities in the same individual, meaning the hot and the cold are battling in you. And uh, when one overcomes the other, that's the end. <laughs> and now he says, but. He turns around in the last paragraph and says, but. Whether he will die by disease or by violence is not yet, meaning, I, I, I think, not yet of necessity, because that's what he's been talking about, but will happen if that does, so that it is clear that it runs back as far as a certain origin, but that this origin does not run back to something else. Thus this origin will be the origin of whatever may chance and there is no further cause of its coming to being, coming into being. No further cause. That's the thing. He's trying to find something that isn't caused. Now, he has made a mistake, although I do think it's very brilliant, because he has noticed something very remarkable and true, but he has made a mistake as well, I think. I think, and I won't argue this now, because in my book I, I did have to show some uh, another passage in Physics Book 2 to try and make it clear. But I think after after writing Physics Book 2, he's using the same language uh, in the first sentence about origins and causes coming into being without a process, uh, which reveals he is talking about what he calls accidents, or at any rate a subspecies of accident, which we would call coincidences. And I think that he's saying that coincidences do not have causes. Why is he saying that? It's very important to remember that for Aristotle, and this is also in Physics Book 2, Chapter 3, an efficient cause is a type of explanatory factor. So if there is no explanatory factor which explains a coincidence, then it's not going to have a cause as Aristotle conceives cause, rather plausibly, I think, because I argued in my book, that all the modern definitions of cause available at the time I wrote were open to extremely simple counter-examples, which had been produced by others. I didn't need to do any work. Every single one had been refuted. Nobody had refuted the idea that the cause is some type of explanatory factor. Of course, we need to know much more about exactly what type of explanatory factor. That work hadn't been done. But at least it wasn't open to extremely familiar objections, which any first-year undergraduate could trot out in those days. Now, his example, if you look at his example, his example would be there might be 
incredibly good explanation of why the thirsty man went to the well. Well, he's given it. He ate spicy food, he was thirsty, the well was presumably the nearest water. He went to the well. That's not unexplained. That's what it calls in eating the spicy food. Similarly, the murderous ruffians, uh, they're not mentioned, but they're presupposed, because um, I, I think it's pretty clear he's thinking that um, the chap gets killed by violence because of going to the well. So we've got to imagine some murderous ruffians got to the well at the same time. That's not unexplained. That doesn't lack a cause. Uh, let's imagine it. Uh, they were drinking in the local tavern. They got too rowdy, and so the landlord threw them out. It was quite near the, uh, the well, and they were pretty thirsty by that time after all that red, Greek red wine. So uh, naturally, they went straight to the well, and uh, the poor thirsty men got there at the same moment. And that was the coincidence. Now, you might say, but you've just admitted that his going to the well had an explanation, and the thirsty people going to the well at that very same hour. I mean, they're going to the well at two, and his going to the well at two have an explanation. You have admitted that. Yes, I have. And I say it doesn't follow that there's an explanation of them getting there at the same time. The explanation is one getting there at two, the other getting there at two, that does not add up to an explanation of them getting there at the same time, I said. And I gave another example to try and make it plausible. Supposing four aeroplanes crashed on the same day, I said. I think I said five aeroplanes, but some people thought I had prophetic vision. Uh, I might do quite well in some countries. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I think I prayed. I said five aeroplanes a very long time before 9-11. And um, I said... Uh, the government might set up a commission to find out what was the explanation of so many, five aeroplanes crashing on one day. Now, they would get an answer if they found there was a terrorist plot, I said. Perhaps so. <laughs> <laughs> but now, supposing it turned out, no, there was no connection between the four, five explanations. I mean, there was a drunken pilot. Uh, there was metal fatigue on one. There was a bomb on a third one and so on and so on. Com five completely unconnected explanations. So now is the Commission uh, free to report to the government, we've got the explanation of why you had five crashes on one day, the same day. No. No, that's not an explanation. The, their answer should be, there is no explanation, it was just a coincidence. And I said the same applies to Aristotle's example. So he's, he's wonderfully right that there are things for which there's no explanatory factor, namely coincidences, a subclass of his accidents, and um, therefore, given his very promising definition of efficient cause, there is no cause of coincidences. Now, this only succeeds in attacking the causal determinist present premise. Every causal determinist starts from the premise, <laughs> whatever happens, has a cause. Well, it's refuted that, I think. Because coincidences happen and they don't have a cause. If causes are explanations, a view I'm thoroughly tempted by, at least more tempted than any modern account. No, I, I owe thanks to Robert Heinemann, who, who made a, a, a thorough attempt to refute me and produced four objections. I, I, I'll, tell you the, the, I'll tell you the most, uh, the most powerful objection, because I... I I, I wasn't persuaded by any of them as it happened, but this one did give me pause. He pointed to a passage which is on the handout, 
on uh, page one, top right hand side, also from Aristotle's Metaphysics, book seven, chapter seven, and he talks about where well, I've underlined it, the active principle then of the starting point for the process of becoming healthy. If spontaneous, in this translation, uh, I, I, I prefer to say if a coincidence actually to connect with what I've just been talking about. Apotomatu in the Greek. Now about a, 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 an accidental or sorry coincidental starting point or active principle or cause, really he's talking about causes. If you've got a if you've got a coincidental cause, what would it be? Well, we're talking about a cause of cure, of curing somebody. The accidental cure the coincidental cause of, of, of the cure might be the production of warmth by rubbing. What's coincidental about it? Well, the rubbing is just the sort of rubbing that a doctor would have used. Uh, something happened to rub you. It was a mere coincidence that this thing rubbed you and rubbed you just at the right spot where a doctor would have rubbed you if you needed, if you got hold of a doctor. But this time it's a coincidence. Why is it a coincidence? Because it was just the spot the doctor would have chosen that got rubbed. But not because anybody knew about that or planned that at all, as a doctor would. That's what he's saying. Now Heinemann thought, and it, it did give me pause, Heinemann thought, well here's a counterexample to Sarebji, it can't be that all coincidences lack causes, because isn't he here connecting coincidences with causes? Isn't he using this phrase, coincidental, apotautomatu? And isn't he saying that um, uh, the, the, the cause, uh, sorry, sorry, the, 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 the cure, uh, uh, the, the cure yeah, is a coincidence uh, which 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 has a cause in, in, in the rubbing. Well, it gave me pause, but the answer is, I think, no, he's not saying that. Uh, it's important exactly what the coincidence is. It's not when you look at it closely, I think, as Robert Heinemann suggested, uh, the cure that's the coincidence. The coincidence is that something happened to rub the right spot. The cure is the effect of the coincidence. Something happened to rub the right spot. Might be a real coincidence with no explanation. I think it's as good as the other example that Aristotle gave, meeting at the well and so on. So I think when you look at it very closely and decide exactly what is the coincidence, um, it's not a counterexample. I mean, if it had been a counterexample, I would have had to think, well, it must be some subclass of coincidences that lack causes. I, at first, I thought I'll have to do that. But now, looking at it more closely, I don't think it is a counterexample as far as I can see. You see, um, what's really happened is that the cure is not a coincidence. It's due to a coincidence. The rubbing at just the right spot. Well, my thanks to Robert Heinemann. I won't take up unless you ask me to these other points because I don't find them, uh, uh, they didn't stop me in my tracks in the same way. But this was an important point for me to, to see if I could answer. Now, enough uh, for my main thing on Aristotle. I will have to say something from my chapter two of my book later on to explain Alexander. But this time I'm not going to apply it to Aristotle, I'm going to apply it to Alexander.
Now, Alexander uh, got into um, controversy with a very able stoic. We are 500 years after Aristotle's death. Alexander of Aphrodisias, we know from um, an inscription deciphered by Angelos Haniotis, who used to be here in All Souls, that he did indeed hold the chair in Athens, as we guessed, but had no positive proof. He did hold the chair in Athens, one of the chairs slightly earlier set up by Marcus Aurelius. He did hold that chair. Uh, he was the most brilliant, probably the most brilliant ever, defender of Aristotle. And he wrote the most wonderful commentaries on Aristotle. He was known as the commentator. These commentaries, Mark, you, were not giving you the most straightforward exposition of what Aristotle said, because he had another business. He had to defend Aristotle 500 years later from the very powerful school of the Stoics, who were attacking Aristotle and provide, presenting a completely different philosophy. And so he was saying things that Aristotle had never said to defend Aristotle. It wasn't just a um, clarification though he is clarifying, it was a defence, so he had to say new things to show usually either that uh, Aristotle knew that anyhow, you don't have to tell us your uh, Stoics, uh, he knew it already, or else, my dear Stoics, what you're saying is absolute rubbish, Aristotle had it right. Uh, and to do that, he often actually borrows from the Stoics, as if Aristotle <laughs> thought what the Stoics were saying. And this is one of the interesting features of commentary. Now, Philopata was obviously very clever. Susanna Bobzian, who's coming to All Souls next year, um, wrote the most brilliant book uh, about Stoic Determinism. It's one of those books which I think it will be hard to surpass for a very, very long time. And she drew attention to how clever Philopata was. Uh, not that nobody had read this stuff, of course other people had read it, but uh, she picked this out. And I've got Philopater on uh, page two of the handout. I hope, have I? It's not page two. It's not page two. Yes, I think it is page two, actually. Um, because Alexander summarizes, Alexander summarizes um, what he thought at 185, 8 to 9, and at uh, Mantissa, 174, 2 following. Oh, I see. Oh, I've got two page ones. Oh, what a mistake. Even so, yes, no, I think it's all right. So let's look at um, page 185, lines 8 to 9. In fact, the very beginning, page 2. And Alexander complains about Philopator, but it's not Alexander who tells us it's Philopator. It's Nemesius, whom we'll come to a little later. To rely on the argument that if in the same circumstances someone acts now in this way and now in another, motion without a cause is introduced, and for this reason to say that no one can do the opposite of what he will do, may this too not be an oversight like those already mentioned. So he's giving you the argument of the Stoic Philopator, like him, 2nd century BC, but Alexander lasted into the 3rd century, and uh, Philopater is thought to have been perhaps early, early second century, second date, not known. So anyhow, Philopater had argued, if in the same circumstances someone acts now in this way and now in another, 
motion without a cause has introduced a supposed absurdity. Now we've just seen that Aristotle says it isn't an absurdity. It happens as often as coincidences happen. But it was very widely believed that uh, motion, a change without a cause, is uh, is an absurdity. It's not absolutely clear that a coincidence would count as a change. In one example that we just had, it was really two changes. It was a fact about the simultaneity of two changes. Dorothea Freda did it at one time, but she, she gracefully withdrew uh, after Susanna Bobziana had written her book uh, later on. I did say that this isn't meant to be determinist. The Stoic is simply saying uh, what will be, what be, will be, what will be, what be. Uh, no, but he, every time this crops up, it's absolutely covered with necessities and possibility and impossibility and so on. It's certainly meant to be a necessity that we've got here. Uh, actually, very gracefully acknowledged later. It was pointed out by Ricardo Sells that actually even the early Stoics presupposed this idea uh, for one reason, and I will add for another reason. Because they have the idea of eternal return. They have the idea that history will exactly repeat itself. I've already uttered this sentence to you an infinite number of times, and you will hear it an infinite number of times again. With no memory, unless you have some memory now, uh, then you will not have any memory next time either. Because every time is exactly the same. I mean, every repetition of the universe's history happens in exactly the same way. Now, what Ricardo Salles says is, uh, this is for a very special reason, it's what Leibniz would call a metaphysical necessity. It's, it's because God creates the best of all possible worlds. So God can't create a, very, a world that's different in some ways, because then it wouldn't be the best possible. It would be the best, the second best. We are living in the best possible world, I hope you understand. And God can't deviate any way next time. That's one reason. There is another reason. Supposing the universe repeated its history exactly with me uttering these words to you in the same sort of surroundings uh, an infinite number of times, that would have to be a giant coincidence. Aristotle actually puts into the definition of coincidence that it's something that's exceptional. It can't happen an infinite number of times the same way. So there are many reasons why the Stoics needed this principle. But I think still Susanna Bodzian is right, uh, or so is Ricardo Salles. But Susanna Bobrian is right, is that no Stoic had formulated it until now, and it posed a tremendous challenge to Alexander. And, and what did he say? Well, he said, all right, I agree. In chapter 15, he said, yes, all right, okay, all right. Uh, he, he says uh, that um, this does happen, and he defends it, lower down on the page, and also uh, we'll come shortly to the next page in the Mantissa. He defends it, and you see I've actually put in the margin that the first defense is the human being is the cause. But that's better spelt out in his other passage uh, on page 3. Uh, we'll understand more about that. It's not causeless. All right. Supposing somebody supposing somebody with the same circumstances surrounding the cause, and the same cause behaves now in one way, and yet another time, with the same circumstances and the same cause, either does, or at any rate would, behave differently. All right, says Alexander, all right. Um, you, you think that would be causeless then? 
but that it would be unmotivated, that, that there'd be no explanation of his behaving. If he could equally well have behaved the other way, or perhaps even when they will behave the other way, in exactly the same cause, or cause with exactly the same cause and exactly the same circumstances, you say uh, his action is then inexplicable, not at all. This is a perfectly good cause of it. This is a perfectly good explanation of it. The human, he, is the cause. We'll see that interestingly elaborated in a moment. And furthermore, second point, which I put in the margin, uh, we have several different motives. I may have a motive to do any of three different things. At this very moment I have in me a motive to pursue the pleasurable, uh, the advantageous, or the noble. All those three motives are lodged in there. So in the very same circumstances, and with the same three motives lodged in me, I may sometimes act on one. Uh, but another time, I either will, or at any rate, perfectly well can, act on another of these motives. They're all in me all the time. And so, there's still a cause, because I'm the cause of my action. Um, but there's not only one, there's not merely one way for me to go from the cause and the surrounding circumstances, because it's a, a triple cause. It's a, it's a triple cause. And any one of the prongs might be the activating one. Uh, some people might say, oh, but there must be some extra factor. I'll come to that later and say why I don't agree with it. Let's look at the, a, a more explicit statement uh, from Alexander's Mantissa. He says uh, the, the, the cause, where I put it in the margin, is deliberation or choice or judgment about what to do, which he mentioned in the previous passage, and the human being himself. Why does he say, and the human being himself? I think it's because of something that Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 6, Chapter 2. The reference to Aristotle is 6 to 1139b5. He has just been talking about deliberate choice, prohiresis, deliberate choice, a choice based on deliberation. And he says, such a source of action is uh, of the human. The human actually is the source of action. He thinks both are true. I mean, uh, 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 the, the, the human's deliberate choice can be called the source of action. But in a way, the human being is his deliberate choice, whereas Plato had had defined a man in dialogues like the first Chalcibiades as, as, as his noose or his uh, logos, his reason. Um, Aristotle here, at any rate, connects it uh, much more with his practical reason or more specifically with his prohiresis. Still uh, a form of reason, but, but a form of practical reason. Uh, the human being is his reason and therefore, just as the his prohiresis, his deliberate choice is a source of action, so he is a source of action. I think that's why Alexander is prepared to interchange his, his choice, his deliberate choice is a source of action, or um, he is a source of action, cause of action. Now, 
There are three points here, and they're doing different jobs. The point that there's a cause here, namely deliberate choice or, 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 or the person himself, and a further point that's made that this cause is an internal one. So if you're only looking for external causes, you won't find it. So please be warned, it's an internal one you've got to look for. If we're looking for a cause, there is one, an internal one. So it's not causeless, contrary to philopital. But the other point, that there are three motives, is to deal with another part of the objection. Uh, to deal not with um, the claim that there's no cause here, but to claim with the, uh, but 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 um, to deal with the claim that um, uh, you're you're giving into the Stoics. Um, uh, there must be necessitation here because um, because um, there are three motives. And those motives must be necessitating the action. One or the other is necessitating the action. Uh, and he's here taking an idea that, or he's here depending on an idea, uh, that these motives are causes, but they don't necessitate. And that's the second idea that I put in Chapter 2 of my Necessity, Cause and Blame book, but then I was talking about Aristotle. But I will tell you all, all over again uh, what my argument was. This is not an argument in Aristotle. It's an argument that I think that indeterminists need to avoid this kind of objection. It's not in Alexander either. I'm offering it to Alexander. I think he's made two very good steps. He's saying, no, there is a cause, these three motives. And uh, um, th th these causes don't necessitate his assuming. But he's only assuming it. So far, excellent. But he needs, and Aristotle needs, and indeterminist needs, this extra argument which I put in chapter 2 of my book. Now the argument is this, I give you an example. Supposing there's a highly motivated student, rather able, and uh, in an eight-week term, an Oxford eight-week term, he comes to his uh, lectures uh, seven weeks out of uh, eight. And uh, this is admirable because actually, being rather short of money, he lives uh, uh, 20 miles away and he has to cycle in. It's quite difficult and he's got children and so on. Uh, so, admirable, admirable. And, and one week, he doesn't make it. He, he just doesn't make it. Well, now the determinist will say, all right, then he was prevented from making it. It was inevitable he wouldn't make it. Some factor must have arisen that wasn't there on the other seven occasions which just tipped the balance and pushed him uh, the other way. Well, that's just an expression of faith. I mean, I'm afraid that uh, determinism and indeterminism are equally matters of faith. There is no proof of either of them in my view. They are simply matters of faith. Only it happens to have proved a subject in philosophy where people have very, very uh, different intuitions and there seems to be no really convincing argument either way. Uh, you can't disprove the other view. Uh, you can't prove your own. And unfortunately, I feel there's been no actual progress. There's been wonderful ingenuity. Now, somebody might say, a determinist might say, but, but look here, if uh, his non-attendance wasn't necessitated, then it's inexplicable. Must be something that necessitated his going. Mm. And the whole burden of my chapter two was uh, 
explanation is a very different thing from necessitation and doesn't depend on it uh, normally. It may occasionally depend on it, but it, normally it doesn't depend on it at all um, because explanation is usually explanation in the face of some question. Explanation is relative to a question. And uh, for most questions, you may have a perfect explanation of why this highly motivated student didn't appear. The other dons in the college say, but I thought he was well motivated to know. Uh, why didn't he come to everyone? I mean, some of these uh, fellows came, came along and they're, um, uh, they're not very uh, committed, but they, they, came, they came all, ten, all, all eight uh, uh, lectures. Uh, he, he lives 20 miles away, poor fellow. He's got children. He has to cycle in. Perfect explanation. Now, it's still good the determinist saying, ah, yes, but no, that's not a perfect explanation. To explain uh, why he didn't come the tenth time, you've got to tell us the entire state of the universe and all its physical laws. I reply that would be completely irrelevant and would add nothing whatsoever to the explanation of what we asked about. We weren't asking about how various atoms moved. We were not. Uh, we weren't asking about that. Maybe uh, his atoms moved in exactly such and such a way. But all right, we're not asking how his atoms. We are asking why he didn't come to. Uh, one of the eight lectures, in face of the fact that he's a highly motivated and able student. Answer, complete and perfect, in relation to the question asked. There is one question, and I believe only one question, in relation to which there is no answer. Supposing somebody said, well, please tell me, in face of the, uh, in face of the fact that he uh, went to... Um, uh, seven lectures, please explain to me why he didn't go to number eight. And that's all he wanted to explain. He, he wanted to explain it in this very narrow way in face of that particular fact. He's not interested in whether the chap lived 20 miles away. Well, this would be a very unusual type of interest. But all right, if somebody has that interest, let's submit it right away. There is no answer. That is inexplicable. The determinist is right. So what? Why should you expect that any bizarre question you ask has got an explanatory answer? The answer is that some questions are questions to which there is no explanatory answer. Really, no skin of our nose. Uh, they're not questions that normally interest us. Uh, the interesting question in this context is certainly, uh, in the face of the fact he was so motivated, why didn't he come? Or many others really interesting questions. We can answer all of them perfectly and completely without mentioning anything about the state of the universe. Yes, I admit, on the indeterminist view, there are some questions, a very, very few, that have no explanation at all. Fact of life. Why suppose that everything can be explained? Can it be explained why uh, <clears throat> the ruler of China blew his nose at the very moment I put this and so then we've seen that coincidences don't have explanations. Why expect that? It's just very exceptional, but why expect it? So that's what I said. Now I'm going to move purely to Alexander, and I'm going to tell you 
uh, something uh, with, uh, which I haven't photocopied um, deliberately because we don't need this one photocopied. Um, but I, I want to tell you uh, that each side, Alexander and the Stoics, tend to beg the question of uh, whether praiseworthiness and blameworthiness are compatible or incompatible with their views uh, on um, all along necessity. Each side uh, can accuse the other of begging the question. And I'm going to show you later that, Aristotle, uh, sorry, that Alexander actually does so in chapter four, 30, 34 of his On Fate. But first I want to tell you uh, that Philopator offers a new definition of what he means by things being up to us. A lot of Stoics have defined things are up to us uh, because they happen through us. You see, if I do something out of some motive I've deliberated about, for example, well, this action happens through me. And that's what we mean, said earlier Stoics, by up to us. Now that didn't seem very satisfactory because some things happen through a horse or um, happen through a rock uh, falling down or something. It's not distinctive of, uh, of, of behavior for which there's not a responsibility. So a philopator, to his great credit, does much more. And actually, uh, this is um, explained uh, by um, Alexandra in chapter 13, which I did not photocopy. It's also explained, although I don't think we need to dwell on it, uh, on page 4 uh, by Nemesius, a Christian bishop later than Alexander, 4th century bishop, um, but who got hold of the most wonderful um, um, facts about the philosophy of mind by various people. And a translation was done and offered to our series, actually, uh, by J.O. Ernson of this college, who was one of my examiners at one time. Um, and I gratefully accepted it, but it wasn't um, suitable, regrettably, uh, for our ancient commentator series. So I put it in the in the library of the Institute of Classical Studies in London until such time as I could find a translator. It's now beautifully translated and explained with references to what these sources were by Bob Sharples, the late Bob Sharples, and by Philip van der Rijk, who's talked in your series. Uh, and what he does really is to say, no, look, uh, through us, meaning through us humans, and Susanna Bobsey is very good at bringing this out, uh, uh, through us humans, I'm sorry, up to us humans means through our rationality and assent, the assent of our reason. The Stoic idea was that a human being, w w when they decide on something, decide on an evaluative proposition. They decide that this would be very good and it's appropriate to reach for it. Or this would be very bad and it's appropriate to avoid it. It's a judgment but an evaluative judgment, a motivating judgment as they call it, a, a hormetiki um, judgment. That, that, that's, what, that's what they think. And so that's the way Philopater defines up to us. Uh, up to us has got to be cashed 
And it's not just through us humans, it's got to be cached as through our giving the assent of reason to uh, this judgment or this appearance uh, that this is the right thing to do, this is the appropriate thing to do. Uh, that's the story he gives. And Alexander feels that's, that's a step in the right direction. And in chapter 14, uh, we were in chapter 13, uh, but in chapter 14, he agrees with it. And uh, Nemesius tells us about it here. We'll come back to this in Nemesius' passage, but for the moment I needn't say more. I think Alexander thinks, well, this is good as far as it goes. This is a good addition to the definition of so definition up for us. I have no complaints about this, but it doesn't alter the main issue. And the issue between us is whether, if you've got all along necessity as the Stoics do, then uh, this definition of up to us, or any other definition of up to us, uh, will be compatible with praise and play. And it won't. No progress has been made on the important question, although he welcomes the reference to um, and he borrows, actually, from the Stoics in certain places, this idea of the ascent of reason, as if it was Aristotle's own, which it isn't. Now, Aristotle doesn't feel that on this pointed issue about the compatibility of all along necessity, Philopotus made any advance, and Philopotus made any advance, and therefore, uh, of his two answers to the Stoics, other than the one he's given to Philopotus already, that namely we've looked at it, that there is a cause, and that there's no necessitation. We've also looked at, his, 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 we'll now look at his further two arguments. Uh, now, then, the next set of arguments are in chapter 18 and 19. I haven't um, copied those because I can just tell you, and it's not crucial for you to have the text. Um, and they're not very good arguments, so I'm not going to dwell particularly on this first lot. But he says the Stoics should have allowed that what is up to us is also free eleutheron under our control autexusion and in charge of opposite ways of acting curion of opposites that's what they should have said he says that in chapter 19 and in chapter 18, he says, the Stoics behave as if their conduct, their writing, is the example he gives, were free, Eleutheron, and under their control, Autexusion. Well, all right, he makes that uh, allegation. Now, an objection might be raised that uh, actually one of the Stoics does actually say something that looks very like that. And I'm talking about Epictetus. I don't know if this has been noticed, but Epictetus, on, on page one, has the following sentence. I fitted it onto page one. There's a little space. In the uh, first bit of translation, he says, that's an awfully bad translation. I think I'll translate straight from the Greek, but I've underlined the Greek. For what is up to you, Targar Episoi, the things that are up to you, out exousia are under your control, and by nature free. I first thought that I put in my book on Gandhi and the Stoics that by nature free is probably a qualification. They're not qualifiedly free, merely by nature free. I think now there might be another way of handling it. And this other way of handling it 
the Greek is actually over the page, but the English is the bottom of this of page one, is this. Uh, that Epictetus doesn't mean by autexousia, under your control, and by by nature free eleuthera, anything remotely like what Alexander is deserving. So uh, he has no motive to pay the slightest attention to Epictetus, even if he had. I think he probably hasn't read this bit of Epictetus. But even if he had, it would seem to him just uh, playing on words. Because each party, you see, it's not that one's more guilty than the other. Each party thinks, no, what they're saying is beside the point. That's not the sense of free I'm demanding. What's the use of this? You see, Epictetus does have a very unusual sense of free and under your control. Here, here's my illustration. What can overcome one impulse but another? An impulse is a desire. And what can overcome one desire? Now, use is the Aristotelian word for desire. What can overcome one desire or aversion, but another desire or aversion? Objection. But, says someone, if a person subjects me to the fear of death, he compels me and an ancadzine, necessitates me. That's the objection. Reply. No, says Epictetus, it is not what you were subjected to uh, that compels you. Uh, that, that impels you, but the fact that you decide that it is better for you to do something of the sort than to die. Once more, then, it is the decision of your own will which compelled you. That is, prohiresis compelled prohiresis. I don't like the translation, moral purposes. Um, I gave another paper last year, and, and Will uh, later saying, what, why? Will is the best translation I can get, but I don't really agree with it. Will is quite right, but it's the closest I can translate. So, in other words, this freedom is a really funny sort of freedom. I mean, you're free even when there's a gun to your head. Uh, that's actually not the sense of free that really interests Epictetus. For Epictetus, freedom is, is, is something um, very rare. But in a certain, a very, very weak sense, uh, you, you, you're, you're free. After all, you could um, just get shot and refuse to do what the tyrant is saying. Well, you're free. Very, very, uh, very weak sense of free. And of course, even if Alexander did that, he thought, it's not what I'm talking about. So it's, it's no fault of his that he hadn't uh, recorded it was one stoic at any rate said free, or rather said free by nature, which might be a qualification, and said out exousia under your control. No, because that's not what he's looking for. Now, I think that's all I need to say on that little bit. And now I'm coming towards my last uh, Greek text. Uh, there, I've got some English text. Uh, my last Greek text on pages five and six, because he comes back to the subject on, 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 on page 5 in chapter 34 and this is where he says uh, uh, the Stoics and I think Philopator in particular are begging the question it's only Nemesius who reveals that it's probably Philopator on the page we've got now this is chapter 4 of Alexander on Fate 
And um, the message of this chapter is that there's something wrong with a bit of Philopator's argument that we haven't yet had. I think it's Philopator that's now under discussion once again. He was under discussion in chapter 13 where his challenge was given about to do it either way at the very moment of action. And I think it's Philopator again because we're talking here about um, this Philopator's new definition of up to us where it's the ascent of reason that's being given. Uh, and, and we're talking about rational creatures in particular, where I've underlined it. I'll just read out the underlined bits on page 5. Therefore it is in accordance with fate that some living creatures, not all, not horses, will merely act, and others will act rationally. That's humans, you see. So that's why I think we're talking about Philopator's version. And, here's the new point, some will act rightly and some wrongly. For this is in accordance with nature for them. But if right and wrong actions remain, now right and wrong actions, that's some um, catorthometer and hamartimeter. Uh, Cicero tells us in his On Duties, Book 1, that catorthometer are actually virtuous actions. Hamartimeter are, are, are wrong actions. Uh, virtue, of course, is very rare for the Stoics. And in the Stoics, um, Catalthermata were these very, very rare virtuous actions, perhaps Socrates, perhaps Diogenes the Cynic, no others mentioned by Epictetus. But there are other signs here that perhaps he merely means, um, really does mean merely right actions. I mean, lots of us may do right actions, but none of us are virtuous on the stoic view. Uh, they might mean right actions. Um, I'm inclined to translate it virtuous wrong actions. Okay, that's the sign that it's philopolis, I think. But it's a new point. But if right and wrong actions remain, and such matters and qualities are not done away with, praise too remains, and blame, and punishments and rewards. Here's his argument. He's saying, look here, uh, things are in accordance with the fate, that's the basic state determinist view, right? But still, you, everybody admits, and Alexander has already admitted happily in chapter 14, that uh, humans are rational. Good, okay, so good. Well, if they're rational, then they are rational in uh, practical matters, so they can do right uh, actions and wrong actions. Okay, right, okay. Uh, so, under our theory that um, uh, things are in accordance with fate, uh, uh, right, uh, or virtues and wrong actions are uh, remain intact. They're not done away with. But if right and wrong actions are not done away with, or virtues and wrong actions are not done away with, then uh, they remain intact also uh, praise and blame and punishments and rewards. That's Philopater's argument. And the rest of the chapter is uh, Alexander saying, you're begging the question. Uh, because the thing is, uh, that of course I believe that there are virtuous and wrong actions. But if you want to say that, uh, that these things are in accordance with fate, then you've done away with virtuous and wrong actions. And therefore, of course, you've done away with praise and blame. So he's saying, you're begging the question. Uh, so you see, um, if you're very committed to one side or the other determinist or indeterminist, you may think the other side's begging the question, but actually, each side thinks the other's begging the question, and uh, this has never been resolved. I doubt if it will be. On the whole, I think philosophy does resolve things with enough care 
And this is one of the cases where he certainly hasn't done so yet, and I'm not holding my breath. Now, I'm coming now to um, something which I think I can now explain, and that is um, Michael Frieda's uh, remarks, uh, three objections to Alexander. Uh, in fairness, I should say this is a posthumous book, which he hadn't finished revising, so you say the lectures, and uh, I, I, I have the feeling that it isn't actually finished, so it's not fair to think this is what he would finally have said. But I don't actually um, uh, uh, agree with any of the three objections. Now, the first objection on page 100 is this. Let's read it out. Page 100. Alexander got into this tangle mainly for two reasons. First, he did not sufficiently understand Stoic determinism, so he did not see that a choice might be no less free for having a perfectly good explanation in terms of antecedent causes. Well, um, in fairness to um, Michael Freda, he did actually give the best account I've ever read. I think it's still a definitive account of, of what antecedent causes are in an early work in Article in Doubt and Dogmatism. Uh, well, you know what I think about um, a perfectly good explanation. I, I won't repeat that. Um, but the main point is, uh, for present purposes, uh, stoic choice might be no less free. And I've already given my answer to that. Yes, it, it, it's free in the senses which uh, don't and shouldn't interest Alexander. Uh, the only sense in which I've seen a stoic say that um, under determinism the choices are free is... Uh, uh, yes, you're free even at gunpoint. Well, yes, I can see there's a sense in which you are, and maybe a sanitary sense for some purposes. I'm not sneering at, at anybody. But uh, but it's absolutely irreverent to Alexander. So I, I simply don't think there's any objection to Alexander. Now, the other two objections are new. The other is also on page 100. And it's about uh, um, something mysterious, allegedly mysterious. At least I thought it was on page 100, if I got it wrong. Let me just see whether it's on the earlier page. Well, we go back to page 6 at the beginning, and there's some nice phrases here. Alexander seems to be driven into a hopeless tangle. <laughs> yes, it's actually, I was quite wrong, it's on page uh, 97. Correct that in my notes. It's on page 97. And a lot of these lectures, or a lot of this book, is directed against his teacher, who wrote a book on the will, Albrecht Dieler. And uh, he here criticizes Dieler as well as criticizing um, Alexander. He says, here we have come very close to Dieler's favored notion of a will which decides or chooses in some mysterious way that is independent not only of the external objects of desire, but also of the desires and beliefs of the person. Well, actually, I've dealt with that objection, I think, also, haven't I, with my student who lived 20 miles away and had children. You see, um, under indeterminism, the non-appearance of that student in one of the eight weeks of lectures was not mysterious, not in relation to well, I suppose, all, uh, I suppose in relation to an infinity of questions. In fact, all but one question. It wasn't mysterious. Uh, and also was not independent of the desires and beliefs of the person, because if you remember, he had three motives in him. Well, uh, even on Alexander's view, we have three motives in us. Now he, my student, had two relevant motives. 
the eagerness to, to, to learn the subject, but, but also the difficulty of getting up early and cycling in bad traffic, especially when you had children. And let's imagine these were standard all the time. It wasn't that the children had a particularly bad night, might have been, but let's suppose it wasn't bad, or that the traffic was worse, or that he had a slight cold. No, it could be that. But maybe there was no difference. Why should there be? Why should there always be some factor which uh, prods us? Uh, that's a deterministic faith. It's possible. It's equally possible within determinism. But nobody has ever proved either side. It's possible that it is so. It's possible that it isn't so. Uh, but one thing that is the case is that it's not mysterious. It is not mysterious. Because if he didn't go, that was because he lived so far away. Complete explanation. Complete in relation to the questions we were talking about. All right, so I think I have dealt with the second objection. Now, the third objection is, uh, is this. It's on pages 99 to 100. So uh, that's on 7, page 7, I suppose. Uh, at three places on, these, uh, on page 7, uh, Michael Freire talks about or rather he accuses Alexander of um, saying that the possibility of doing otherwise, the possibility of not going to a lecture, the possibility of not making a beautiful sculpture with some very, very brilliant sculptor, the possibility of uh, acting atrociously when normally you act extremely well. This is what, so Michael Freder charges, this is what makes an action praiseworthy. It's um, that from which actions derive their merit. It's that even in which merit lies. Oh, but surely this is not right. All Alexander is saying is that one necessary prerequisite uh, for an action to be uh, virtuous or, or, or right is that the person could have done otherwise. He's not saying that's what makes it right or... or, 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 or uh, uh, what it derives its merit from, or that in which its merit lies, that's much too strong. He's merely making um, a perfectly humble point that one necessary condition of an action's being virtuous or meritorious, to use Freyler's work, um, is that, uh, well, it wasn't inevitable, much less inevitable all along. Uh, uh, the person could have done otherwise. And Alexander said it could have done otherwise even at the last moment. Well, I think it is actually a prerequisite. I think it is actually a ne necessary prerequisite for praise and blame. Supposing there was somebody who was just born, an absolutely brilliant sculptor, to take Freda's example. I mean, even at the age of uh, 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 six months, he made the most wonderful sculptures. Uh, would, would we say, good lad, good lad, praise him, <laughs> praise him? No, we'd, we'd feel awe, wouldn't we? An astonishment. Um, this is what Aristotle and Alexander actually says about the gods. We don't praise the gods. God has created the world. Praise him, praise him. Well, actually, it's the psalm does say praise him. Or was that the hymn? I can't remember. Yes, praise the Lord, O my soul. Well, yes. Uh, is that a good translation? I don't know. After all, uh, often the Greek text is, um, the surviving Greek text is uh, 
is a more recent than the surviving Brutus. Well, we don't praise the gods, says Aristotle and Alexander, in the last paragraph of chapter 34, which I cut out because I ran out of room. <laughs> we don't praise the gods. We're awestruck. Aristotle also discusses it, um, uh, something related about blame. He says that, uh, remember, uh, with a hardened, uh, hardened, vicious person, uh, we still blame them because there was a time when they could have done uh, good, but they got into bad habits. So now suppose we take this case where somebody just acted absolutely frightfully from the moment of birth and never stopped. Well, then I'm not sure that blame is exactly what we'd feel as a sort of despair, alarm, and revulsion indeed. But I think blame would be the least obvious thing to feel. I mean, we might feel they need to be locked away, we might feel they needed treatment, we might feel all sorts of things, but blame would be very much less obvious, I think. So I think, uh, actually, Alexander's making a perfectly good point, that praise and blame wouldn't really be um, appropriate uh, for people whose conduct was absolutely inevitable, especially if, as with the Stokes, it had been inevitable all along. Now, I think the last thing I'll say is this. Um, oh dear, I've gone on far too long. I'm terribly sorry. We have time. Well, this is the, this is the very last thing. An enormous difference between um, Aristotle and Alexander is this. That whereas um, Aristotle was against all along determinism, but was perfectly happy, you remember, for things to have become inevitable some time ago. I mean, perhaps this chap's uh, bad habits were really so ingrained by the time he was 14 um, that, that uh, it's been inevitable he'd go on being vicious ever since then, and now he's 84 or something. Uh, Aristotle's perfectly happy with that. Right. But notice that Alexander isn't. Because under this tremendous pressure from Philopater, who's a clever fellow, He's been pushed into saying the extreme opposite. Well, perhaps not opposite about this particular case, um, because he might admit that with this particular uh, vicious fellow, he couldn't stop being vicious. Uh, but that for ordinary people, at any rate, it's not as with Aristotle that uh, at least something 10,000 years ago didn't make it inevitable. Alexander's gone to the opposite extreme. Even at the moment of action, it's not inevitable which way I behave. Because I might act for nobility, for uh, advantage, or for pleasure. So he's gone to the opposite extreme under pressure uh, from the Stoics. Now, I think that most people probably feel that it's somewhere in the middle that one starts getting anxious about, namely before one's birth. I mean, about the time of one's birth. If it was inevitable from before one's birth, then a lot of indeterminists would feel, oh God, well, if it was inevitable from the time of my birth, then I can't be praised or blamed for anything. But you know, if it's become inevitable uh, by the age of 14, then it's certainly the right that uh, I can be blamed because I could have behaved otherwise at 13 and a half. So I think the time of birth is rather significant. But notice that Aristotle has gone from 10,000 years ago uh, or rather, Alexander's gone from Aristotle's 10,000 years ago to his own at the very moment. So you see there he's defending Aristotle, he's defending him in the new context of what the Stoics are pressing on him. So quite strong differences, and yet 
Nonetheless, I see this as highly Aristotelian, but Aristotle revised 500 years later to deal with what the objections that have arisen since. Thank you very much.